If you've followed me for a little while, you'll have picked up that I gravitate towards people who challenge the status quo and think deeply about topics rather than just deferring to what the herd is doing. So when I saw a book called Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world, I went looking for the author, figuring that I'd be interested in their perspectives on the world of work. I wasn't wrong. Marcus Buckingham is an author, researcher, and thought leader focused on unlocking people's strengths, increasing their performance, and pioneering the future of how people work. He's the head of people and performance research at the ADP Research Institute, and he's my guest on this episode. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Marcus Buckingham, how are you, mate? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been a big fan of your work and especially around talent. And, you know, I've spent the last couple of years really exploring the overlap between sports and business. And I just see so many similarities in terms of, uh, you know, the the stuff that you put out around leadership and teams and team dynamics. So we're going to dive into that. But Let's start with this. You know, this is a show about leadership and a lot of the following of my show are sports coaches and hiring managers in companies. And in your latest book, lie number nine out of the nine lies of work is that leadership is a thing. So I'd love for you to explain that to everyone listening because there's going to be a, (laughs) people are going to be interested about that one. Why is, why is it a lie that leadership is a thing? Well, so the book is um, it's called Nine Lies About Work, and each one of them starts from a position of what do we know, what's knowable, rather than theory and my idea is this and I think this and I believe that. Let's just start with what's knowable. Mm-hmm. Um, and the impetus for the book, Cody, is frankly that uh, employee engagement remains at about 16 17% around the world, and purpose and productivity hasn't moved in 40, 50 years around the world. So despite all the money and energy and effort and technology that we've thrown at productivity and engagement around the world, we haven't moved it. We're missing something pretty significant. And when you look at what we're missing, it's not just that some of our practices are way off base. It's that our core assumptions about human beings at work are misguided and not based on any data at all. They're just it's almost as though somebody's got an agenda and they're pushing it on us. And so before we take these assumptions and plug them into machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms, and if you think about an algorithm, it's really just an assumption turned into math. Before we do that, before we start deploying these algorithms at great scale, now's a really good time to just go, well, wait a minute, what are these assumptions? And are they misguided? Are they misconceptions? We ended up calling them lies because they are pushed at us so hard that it does seem as though somebody seems to be wanting to yank us in the wrong direction. <laughs> right. So the, the, the last one, leadership is a thing. As with all of these lies, you're trying to present the lie and then go, well, what's the truth behind it? And, and, and the lie is obstructing the truth. In this case, 
if leadership is a thing, then when we take 20 great sports coaches and we line them up, you take you know, Bill Belichick or John Wooden and you take your favorites and list them out and interview them and analyze their responses or do 360s on them and look at the data or whatever your analysis would be, the theory of leadership is that each one of them um, shares a list of competencies that we can call leadership. They all share a similar set of behaviors or attributes or competencies that they're able to execute and that that list is called leadership. And if you want to be a better leader, then you need to be able to identify those competencies and acquire them. That's why you might do a 360 to pinpoint where you're lacking so that you can go acquire the competencies that you lack so you can be better at leadership. And yet when you do that research, and it's been done time and time again now, what you find is that the, they don't all share the same competencies at all, that every one of those leaders is different. In fact, the better they are, the more different they are. There is no shared set of common attributes that every leader possesses. Leadership doesn't exist. The only thing that all these leaders have in common, and all your listeners are going to know this before I even say it, but the only thing they have in common is followers and followership is a thing and it's a uniform thing every single leader seems to create in people the same set of feelings how they do it is completely idiosyncratic so leadership isn't a thing followership is a measurable thing you can ask followers what they feel about a certain leader and what their responses are those are reliable they are reliable reported of their own feelings about a leader. So they're not sort of rating somebody on a list of qualities. They're just describing their own feelings about a particular leader. When you do that, and you can do that, you find that the best leaders do actually share the same feelings that they've created in followers. So the challenge to be a better leader isn't to try to acquire the qualities that leadership defines, because there are no shared qualities. Instead, the challenge for you as a leader is to figure out what is your unique and authentic way to create those feelings in followers. That's a totally different prescription. And so, uh, but yet it's one that's borne out by the data. No such thing as leadership. There is such a thing as followership. Why that resonates with me so strongly is I wrote a similar chapter in Where Others Won't about a similar kind of misconceptions around leadership. And I went and looked at some of the less flattering traits that you never hear about with Nelson Mandela, Winston Churchill, Walt Disney, you know, these yeah. iconic figures in leadership. And when you read some of Winston Churchill's quotes that you know he wrote, they are damning, you know, in the, in the current context. And so, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And then, there's also, you know, this uh, halo effect that Steve Jobs has. Even when he was at Apple and Pixar at the same time and the style of leadership that he showed in both those organizations, that whole trait theory just goes out the window. Well, yeah, it's like leadership. If you think about it, to, when, you, when you want to follow someone, followership is first and foremost an act of forgiveness. When you follow someone, when you choose to give someone your breath, when you choose to put your destiny into somebody else's hands, you forgive them a ton. Mm -hmm. You forgive Churchill his belligerence. 
You forgive King George VI his ability to speak. You forgive Steve Jobs his dickishness that he would, he would keep re-registering his car so that he could park it in a handicapped spot and not get a ticket every six months. You forgive people. You forgive Walt Disney, his anti-worker unionism. You forgive them. You forgive leaders their failings if they can give you certainty about a future and if they can do it authentically. I mean, look at here in the United States, Trump. I mean, Trump is a liar. Trump is a consistent liar. And yet we kind of know that about him. And we, we, I say we, the, the, the broader populace voted for him because we felt like we understood the future that he was dragging us into more clearly than we could with his adversary, Hillary Clinton, who remained right up until the end, a super smart person who was opaque or more opaque than we would have wanted her to be. So it's funny, we forgive Trump his lying. We forgive Trump his, right. in, his impetuosity. I'm not going to go to visit Greenland because I don't, I'm not, I don't take kindly to the prime minister not saying that she would sell it to me. <laughs> but we go, you know what, <laughs> that's just him. And the media gets all bent out of shape. But, but we follow people, and obviously I'm not saying I, who I voted for, but, but we follow people who give us certainty and we forgive them. Martin Luther King, we forgive his infidelities. We don't, it's, it's an act of forgiveness to follow someone. So when you have a trait or competency-based theories of leadership, which are what are by far the most common theories and practices of leadership in the corporate world. You, when you actually push on the data, Cody, and you go, prove it, build an assessment that shows that all the best leaders share the same competencies, and then prove that the people that achieve the competencies that they lack outperform the leaders that don't. There is no research on that at all. <laughs> and anyone, whether it's the Center for Creative, for, for Creative Leadership, CCL, or whether it's PDI or DBI, or any of these companies that, that say there is research on this, you push, there's no referee journal that would touch that research with a barge pole. When you look at great leaders, they're idiosyncratic. And so the whole trait-based theory on which a lot of companies build a lot of their programs and products, I'm afraid it's a lie. And you, you push on it and you realize the lie leads to really bad prescriptions where, where leaders are told to acquire traits and competencies they lack. And of course, the very first thing that flies out the window is authenticity. We just don't, we, we the followers, we start going, wait a minute, who the heck are you? Mm-hmm. I don't know who you are anymore. Yeah, so that's, that's line number nine. That doesn't mean that we can't help leaders get better. It doesn't mean that leaders are not a thing. There are leaders. But leadership and all the practices and the teachers and programs and tools that come from that, it's all just made up. And this is what I love about your work and I really admire about is you, you consistently challenge these notions. So let's, let's do another one. And I was going to ask you about culture, but I'm actually going to ask you about your opinions around strengths and weaknesses. Cause we were just talking about, you know, this idea of we're building systems around lies essentially. And another one that I see, and, and even within the sports realm, but especially within the corporate space is, is this idea of strengths versus weaknesses and, and applying time and effort into fixing weaknesses rather than doubling and tripling down on strengths and actually strengthening. Yeah. But you have a really interesting point about just 
how we think about strengths and what they are and how we think about weaknesses and what they are. I'd love for you to explain that to me. Yeah. Well, that ch- chapter four of the book is, is the lie is the best people are well-rounded. And of course the truth is that the best people are spiky <laughs> right. in any profession. They've found some unique angle of attack, some unique comparative advantage, and they've leveraged it with great intelligence. And your strengths, of course, are not the areas where you're most complete, where you're finished. Your strengths are those areas where you'll actually grow and develop the most. That's why all this language where you have strengths on one end of the continuum and areas of opportunity or areas for development on the other end of the continuum, it's such an odd use of language because the most effective people seem to realize that your strengths are your greatest areas of opportunity for development and growth. Yes. And your weaknesses are your weaknesses, and we got to deal with them. It's like the example we quote in the book is Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi, if you were to design a footballer, you know, he's arguably the greatest footballer that has ever played the game. And he's five foot seven, maybe five foot seven, <laughs> maybe a little, maybe a little shorter. Um, he, his, his dominant foot is his left foot. His dribbling ratio of touches left foot to right foot is, is one touch for his least dominant foot to 10.1, 10.2 touches, which to give that comparison to Ronaldo, although he's right footed, his dominant to less dominant ratio is one to 4.5. So Lionel Messi is not only left footed, he's massively left footed. Even when he's dribbling past all the rest of the other team, you think he's got to touch it with his right. I mean, they all know he's just got a left. But you go onto YouTube and you just watch any of these incredible dribbles of his, and it's just this weird, disproportionate, massive overemphasis on the speed <laughs> and the precision of mm-hmm. his left foot. And, and everyone knows it. It's like all the, all the players on the other team know it. Now, if you work for the corporate world, we'd go, well, look, look, look the left foot is good. It's fine. But what you really need to work on, and then they point to the right foot or the head or the chest or something. And of course, if you do, were to do that, you wouldn't get Lionel Messi today. Somebody, and actually the, the, the training academy for Barcelona did that when they first got him, they paid him extra cookies, like gave him extra cookies if he scored a goal with his right foot or with his head. <laughs> and after, when he got to be 15 years old, he was like, I, I quit. This whole, I, I'm, I'm going back to, to Argentina, I'm, I'm done. And it's only then when he was like, this, I'm, I'm burned out with your training on my fixing my weaknesses, that they went, you know what, we're going to just change everything and say, number one, always be dangerous. Wherever you are in the field, be dangerous. That's your job. And number two, just keep working on your left foot. Make it so dominant, so powerful, you can do whatever you flipping well want with it. And, and he became what he became today. That doesn't mean he can't use his right foot. It means your strength, in this case, a very specific one, become the integrating point for the way in which you engage all new skills or all new experiences. His, his massively dominant left foot opens up opportunities for him to sometimes, by surprise, use his right foot and sometimes, by surprise, even use his head, although he scored very few goals with his head. Probably because he's five foot, five foot seven. <laughs> right. um, but it's a, one of those weird People think strengths are fine. Now work on your weaknesses. We look at the human race and we go, you're broken. We look at our, a human in our lives and we go, he or she is broken. 
And so we, our job as team leaders or coaches is to fix them. And of course, the best sports coaches, they have realized so early that the whole goal of, in this case, sports, is, is to put a, a team on the field that wins or an individual on the field that wins. And if you're going to win, just like tennis players have got to figure out what is, what is the actual combination of shots that I have that will finish a point? The best tennis players have to figure out what is the combination I've got to finish the point. They don't get well-roundedly good at backhands and forehands and volleys. You take the top 25 tennis players and they've all got an angle, an edge. Now you look at Federer, you go, he's got everything. No, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He's got some really specific skills and strengths as a player. You look at Djokovic and God, his service terrible compared to the rest, some of the rest of the top, top, top 25. But he's got an amazing return as well as other, a couple of other things that he has. You look at excellence anywhere and what you've seen is someone who's taken their uniqueness really seriously and then have cultivated it and turned it into something that's incredibly useful and powerful. And long story short, the, the, the whole definition of a strength Start by going, it's a place that you will get a, not an incremental, but an exponential improvement in your performance. It's also a place that makes you feel strong. And so that's an interesting sort of definition of, we think of strength is what you're good at, weakness is what you're bad at. But you look at the most successful people and they don't define strength that way because frankly, there are some things they're pretty good at that they hate. Cody, there's probably some things that you're pretty good at that you hate. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot, right? Well, you're, you're kind of <laughs> effective, but, but it drains you or bores you or drags you down. It's a weird thing where somebody says, listen, because you got four A's in your pre-med classes, you should go be a doctor. And then the person goes, yeah, but I hate sick people. And then that, <laughs> you know, the coach or the, parents or whatever, it doesn't matter. Go be a doctor because you're good at it. Strength is an activity that strengthens you. And a weakness is an activity that weakens you, even if you're good at it. Mm-hmm. If you, you can really think about a strength is way more appetite than it is ability. What are you drawn to? And that doesn't mean like those people who sort of show up on American Idol where you go, wait a minute, they're drawn to singing, but they're terrible. Right. No, they're not, they're not drawn to singing. They're drawn to attention. They're drawn to the attention. When we say a strength is what strengthens you, what is the actual activity? You love practicing scales and arpeggios with your voice for 10 hours a day. Do you love that? Because if you don't love that, then don't say your strength is singing when you want to go on American Idol. Your strength is just you want people to look at you. Okay, that's different. Yeah. So anyway, that's a long answer to a short question. No, I like that. A, a strength is an activity that strengthens you. That's something that I, I wrote down when I heard you say it. And I just, I love that definition. And again, just so many similarities of ideas that I've presented. You know, I gave a talk in Edinburgh last month and it was called why the HR department should be called the high performance department. And mm-hmm. a similar idea is when you look at what is now the high performance department within sporting organizations, people tend to think that it's strength and conditioning and medical services and psychology. But the, the foundational idea is human potential. 
Mm. How do I get the most out of this individual and what do I need to put around him or her that sets them up for success? And if that means extra training on the left foot to really make that a, a competitive advantage or extra training on the serve because we, we've got speed but we haven't got control, that's what a high-performance department will do. And that's why I like that idea for the workplace is because currently what we're doing is managing people through the HR department, their paperwork, their, you know, annual leave balance, you know, Mm. discipline, all that kind of thing, rather than setting them up for success. And it's something that to your point, like none of this has really changed in the last generation. We're still doing the same things. And if anything, it's probably gotten worse. Yeah. Well, it has sort of gotten worse. The data would show that it hasn't got any better at all even mm-hmm. per person productivity. I mean, in the US and in Canada, it hasn't moved even just a little under 1% in the last 50 years. It's crazy, I mean, isn't it? that just shows that we have not, we haven't sussed this out at all. You know, the funny enough, the place where we miss, the, the, the first lie of the book is that people care which company they work for. And there's a lot of blather about culture and how, how one company's culture, Patagonia's culture is different than Nike's culture is different than Tesla's culture. And then we get the Fortune 100 best companies to work for, which is all about culture. And unfortunately, if you look at the data on that, by the way, if, if Tesla were to say to have a culture, obviously it has one stock price, but if it were to have one culture, you'd have to find two things. You'd have to find that if you ask people about their lived experience of working at Tesla, the first thing you'd have to find is that it's uniform, it's consistent, within Tesla, and second, you'd have to find that it was different from the lived experience of somebody working at Patagonia, measurably, right. um, and that's not true. You can never find that. You never find that anywhere, ever, no research ever that shows that the culture of Tesla is uniform inside of Tesla and is different in some measured way than the culture of Patagonia. It's all just made up. Why? Because people care which company they join. All of these magazines and articles and so forth, these are just recruiting manuals. And that's fine. We should do that. But let's not pretend. When you actually join a company, once you've joined, all the peacock feathers fade. And we're now working for a team. People care which team they're on. How do we know that? Because every company has variable voluntary turnover that varies inside of the company much more than it does than between companies. So when people choose to leave something, the thing they're leaving isn't the company, it's the team they're on. Everything for you, not everything, but almost everything in terms of your lived experience at work is a function of the team you're on, team members and the team leader within that team. And the funny thing about HR, Cody, as you're saying, is HR doesn't get that at all. We can't even see the, the team. I run right now the ADP Research Institute, which gives me a chance to do global research around the world. We now know 83% of people do most of their work on teams. We know that 65% of those people say they do work on more than one team and that team isn't reflected on the org chart, which means you can't see it. Almost all org charts are just extensions of financial systems which tell you which box you're in and which budget that box is in. And some work flows through there, but most work doesn't. Most work is on teams and the best coaches, sports coaches particularly, have figured out that the primary usefulness of a team is that it makes weirdness useful because you combine different people with different enduring strengths and you take these spiky people and you craft them into a team where where the team is well-rounded precisely because each individual in it isn't. 
if you focus the lens of work through team, suddenly individual strengths, individual contributions, suddenly those become useful. Whereas if you don't look at the lens of team, then idiosyncrasy becomes a bug that you've got to fix, mm -hmm. which leads to pretty much everything we've done for the last 50 years. Not to be too overblown about it, but we have spent the last 50 years going, the most useful thing about human nature would be is if each human's nature is the same. That's pretty much still today. The big human capital management companies that build their software do goals and competencies and 360s and nine box grids and pretty much every single person's lived experience at work is seen through the lens of systems that wished everyone were uniform. And it takes you about two seconds on LinkedIn to scroll past about 10 articles prescribing what your culture should look like. And most of the time that's something from Tesla at the moment and whoever's, you know, hot in that space. And, and the idea that there's a singularity around culture in general is such a flawed concept and, and I hate it. And it's kind of driven me away from uh, engaging in a lot of these discussions, but Another thing that, yeah. that, I, that I think is really interesting that you just said is, you know, that, that idea of team and, you know, I'm a team guy, I'm a sports coach and all of my work is around team dynamics and, and what we've spent time doing again in the business world is fighting microcultures. We try to bust them up little groups within the bigger culture that might have something in common. We, we generally try to get rid of them. We see them as poisonous. I think if we flip that idea on its head and we harness those microcultures, there's a part in the Manchester city documentary where they talk about where all the different ethnic groups sit within the meeting room. So the, the Spanish speakers sit in a particular area and you know, they have their commonalities there and essentially what we're talking about is microcultures. And then the objective of the coach and the leadership is to mold them into something extraordinarily unique. Then you've got a unique culture. Or once you've harnessed all those different facets, then you know. interesting. I haven't seen that. What's that? What's that called? It's all or nothing. It's on Amazon. Oh, I've got to watch that. Yeah. That's super interesting. Cause normally in companies we go, Hey, Spanish people over there, don't sit in the corner with each other. Instead you must destroy that micro. So that is interesting. When you look at data on engagement and you ask people simple questions about, do you know what's expected of your work? Do you have confidence in the future? Do you feel someone has your back? Simple questions like that. You find the only thing you can say for sure about work is that there are microcultures everywhere. One right. team in one department working right next door to another team in another department is hugely different in terms of even something as simple as confidence in the future. And, and we, you're right. We don't embrace the power of microcultures. We fight them. And there's a lot to be gained. It's like if you want to join a company and you want to figure out if it's going to be a good company, ask them what they do to build more teams like their best teams. Don't ask what the company's culture is like. It doesn't mean anything. Ask them what do you do to understand what your best teams do. If the answer, if people flail with the answer, just be super cautious and find out instead who's the actual team you're joining. Because if the company can't figure out what it's doing to learn about what its best teams do, then the chances of you joining a really good team are 50-50 at best.
Yeah. Let me know what you think about this because I see this as one of the root causes of all the problems we have is the, the bravado and salesmanship that exists right the way through the recruitment process. So not only do we not understand the teams and the culture within our organization, we feed bullshit to the market right from the job description. And that's a whole nother that's a whole nother podcast for us to do is just, it's just job descriptions, but we, we yeah. start, we start there. So we're selling lies right from that point. And then we get someone in for interview. We continue to lie to them and, and both sides are actually lying to each other at the interview phase. We're not really being honest with each other. You know, we tell the new salesperson that they're going to get great accounts or, you know, all our blue chip accounts are going to go to you and we're going to set you up for success. And then the reality is on day one, we literally put them at their desk, say, here's your computer and, you know, off you go. And then we wonder why people like that leave, you know, three months later, even though we've just spent six months lying to them. Like what, what, how do we fix that? How do we get... Yeah. How do we, you know, if you think about that from a dating perspective, imagine lying to each other for the first six months and then being surprised when you break up. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. No, I think there's a, well, uh, at the moment there's lies everywhere. So the Mm, question is, which one do you want to start with? I don't know. You know, I don't know what you want to start with with the, with the job description thing. It's, it's, um, we, we haven't really thought about who the human is that we're asking to join. We define the job in terms of the requirements and the, and the competencies or the attributes that every incumbent is supposed to have. When in fact we should define the job by the outcomes, we should define the job only by the outcomes. And then we should be asking in the recruitment process, just who are you, who are you, who are you, who are you? Don't define the job by the methods because then you're standardizing the job. So it does all Mm -hmm. begin there. I mean, it begins, Everything seems to be, if you wanted to sort of summarize what, what the data reveal is that the most powerful thing about a human is the unique set of qualities and strengths that they bring. And that if you wanted to get the most from them, you'll partner them up with somebody who pays frequent attention to them so that they can harness, grow, build upon the insights that are already there within them. That's the way in which high performance happens. Mm-hmm. And you keep putting the person out in the real world and then you look for signs and you look for places where they see giant leaps of learning, places where there's massive insight, places where there's some just slight edge they have over somebody else, and then you build a team around those, those unique little advantages. That's, that's how you get the most out of a human. What we are currently doing is almost the exact opposite of that. As, as crazy as that sounds, we are saying that the most efficient way to organize a hospital, let's say, is to imagine that we have 70 nurses all of whom are going to do job the job in pretty much exactly the same way. And if you're not doing it in exactly the same way, we will remediate you and correct you until you do. Why? Because that's efficient. And whether mm-hmm. it's nursing, whether it's software development, whether it's sales, that's what we've done. We've homogenized work with humans. And as a result of that, we're getting engagement levels that are super low and productivity levels that are not what they should be. So if we could just, boy, if we could just press pause and go, no, the, the power of human nature is that each human's nature is different. That's not a bug. That's no. the point. Awesome, mate. I know you've got to run. So where can people find you and all the work that you're doing? Well, I do a, 
uh, every other week video blog on marcusbuckingham.com. But we've also partnered with Harvard Business Review to do a, uh, a site for leaders, uh, free-thinking leaders. Obviously, to get the most out of people, you've got to break free of a lot of the dogma that is forced upon you. So <laughs> you go to freethinkingleaders.org. Uh, or if you just type in free thinking leader and Harvard business review, you'll see there's a, there's a place there with every single lie and every single truth broken out. And then a whole bunch of commenting and questions. And then there's a, a book club thing, which enables you to get your team together if you want to and put your questions in. So we're trying to get as much blood running through the veins of this free thinking approach as we can. Cause at the moment, we really are just starting, it seems. Brilliant, mate. Well, thanks again for your time. Marcus is also a great follow on Twitter, MW Buckingham, and definitely go out and pick up Nine Lies About Work. It is a fantastic read and it'll challenge your mindset on all of what we've talked about today.